The 2009 bushfires that are ravaging Australia are more intense than has ever been seen before. Expert firefighters and meteorologists are calling them catastrophic. Today we speak to a woman who has been at the centre of this devastation. Fiona Lee and her family lost their home less than a week ago. But days after that tragedy, they were standing outside the New South Wales Parliament House calling for action on climate change. How did they do this? Where did this courage to act come from? And why has it been so powerful and important for Fiona and Aaron to act? Today is only a few days after their disaster, but only days into what looks like being the worst bushfire season on record, thanks to climate change. Let's listen to Fiona explain her story. You do not want to miss this. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Okay, Fiona, it is quite extraordinary to have you on, on the line here today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It is my, it is my utter pleasure. <laughs> so, you know, this week, Australia has seen the worst bushfire conditions in its history, and you have been in the press talking powerfully about this. I was hoping you might just set the stage for this conversation by telling the audience about what you've been speaking about. I've been using the loss of our house to talk about the need to address uh, climate change and the ecological crisis that we're in. And we're going to hear a lot more about the kind of experience that you've had over the last seven days. So, you know, for, we've got a bunch of listeners who are overseas beyond Australia and they, they probably don't know much about the, the context of the bushfires or also how Australian politicians have been talking in Australia to say that we shouldn't politicise the bushfires by talking about climate change and rather suggesting this is just a moment for sympathy, for thoughts and prayers for those who are affected by, um, by the bushfires. So I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who is at the centre of these fires, what do you think about the idea of delaying talk of climate change in this moment? I think that it's absolutely ridiculous to delay it any further. It's been delayed for decades already. And now the evidence that we're in a climate catastrophe is right in front of our face. And there has never been a more opportune moment to, try to, to talk about this. And the politicians are just saying that, it, that, you know, now is the time for sympathy in an effort to shut down the conversations around it because they're in denial about climate change. It's low and the kind of rhetoric that's been coming out of the right-wing politicians is just scathing um, and really low, uh, attacking people that have died and just shutting down the conversation already when like a great deal of the people, if not everybody that I've spoken to that's either had their houses burnt down or their communities threatened just want to talk about um, the underlying causes of this really severe bushfire season. Yeah, yeah. 
So I think that many of our listeners are keen, I certainly am deeply keen to understand where your current advocacy comes from, you know, because um, your advocacy has been so powerful. So I want to step back and, and understand a little bit more about you and your family. Can you, mm. tell, can you tell us, you know, where do you live? Paint a picture for the, the space in which your house was and the community in which you live. Well, I grew up on the mid-coast of New South Wales in Australia and I had travelled away for a fair amount of time but returned to the beautiful valley uh, and have been living there for or had been living there for two years. Um, our house burnt down three days ago now and we lived in on a bamboo plantation. Yeah, it was pretty idyllic. We lived off-grid in a house built by my partner and lived there with our three-year-old daughter. But now we've we relocated immediately the next day to Newcastle, which is a couple of hours south, and we're spending time resettling here. Wow. So just, just to sort of dwell on some of your experiences, you know, what did you do in that community? You've been, you've been living there for a couple of years. You know, what, what sort of work did you do? Like what was, what was the community like as a place to live? Yeah, I worked a little bit outside the locality in which we lived. I worked in the closest regional centre, which is about 35 minutes away, uh, and I was a community development worker there employed by the local neighbourhood service to work on a community safety project in the social housing estates with the view to uh, improve the safety of the community. Yeah, and it was really good work, working with a lot of Birupai people and elders from the area and making good connections and working with young people was really good work. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I can hear it (laughs) in the pulse of your work. I was going to ask you if you've been involved in any other community issues or social change concerns before. It sounds like your work, your vocation was, was part of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess ever since I went to uni quite a long time ago now, I became pretty aware of uh, social justice and what that meant. Yeah, and, you know, having friends that were in the student association and becoming aware of that and then growing up in a in a town with a, a lot of Aboriginal people living there, a lot of Birupai people, uh, and, you know, I was sort of drawn to working with, those guys and yeah yeah and then what about the issue of climate change like when did you first become aware of climate change as a concern yeah that's quite a difficult question actually because I feel like it's something that's always been there but it really sort of came to my attention more clearly about that time studying at university about I don't know 2005 in the last couple of years, the the it's become much more clear um, how dire it is. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, in particular, as someone who lived c- close to bushland, did you mm. ever think about how climate change could affect you directly? Yeah, absolutely. My partner and I had talked it over and over and over and over because we did live on a dry ridge in the drought um, surrounded by eucalypts. We, you know, we were prepared to lose our house. We have been prepared to lose our house to bushfire for many months now. Yeah, and, yeah, which is shocking in itself to come to the conclusion that we probably will lose everything, and we did, you know, as a consequence of the crisis, that the climate crisis that we're in. So, yeah, it's been at the forefront of our minds 
So I'm wondering if you would mind telling our listeners what happened with the rise of the fires in the last, in November, in these last few days, last week. I mean, it's only spring here in Australia and there has been fires burning in the bush around uh, where we live for a number of weeks. And then <clears throat> there was an extreme fire condition uh, warning on the day that we lost our house and, and they sparked a lot more fires, um, which, you know, a lot of houses were lost and the conditions are still really bad and more houses are being lost. So there's no reprieve. And how, what, but what happened to you? Were you at home or were you away uh, from your house? Oh, uh, we, yeah, we were at home packing for a, an overnight kayaking trip. So had the kayak on the roof of my car and all the gear in the car. And thankfully we were ready to leave anyway. Um, we were monitoring the monitor, emergency services uh, information that we were receiving. And that sort of indicated the fire was 15 kilometres away from where we were. But it was pretty obvious from you know, our front door that the fire was not that far away with the, you know, the sky blackening and the ashes starting to fall on our house. It became, you know, immediately obvious that we needed to get out of there, uh, which we did. We drove into the nearest town, um, yeah, and we're safe. Thank God, right? Like, thank God yeah. you're able to be thank safe. Goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you return? Yes, my partner returned that evening um, to get his parents out of their house because being older country folk, they'd seen it all before, but because these fires are unlike what people have seen before, they they probably wouldn't have been safe. So he went into the fire front in my, you know, pretty old little two-wheel drive station wagon to um, to go and get his parents and get them out, and which he did. And we've since returned twice to the remains of our house to sort of get a bit of closure, I guess, on, on that period of our life. Was there anything left? There's a lot of ash. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, bits of steel, but it's pretty much been incinerated. It's, it's quite fascinating that a house full of love <laughs> And material possessions, like the, the the fridge is just gone. The every, I mean, it's it's absolutely incinerated. And but around the edges of the house, you can see half burnt out poles, and you know there's still some children's clothes hanging on the gate that were drying. But it's yeah, it's pretty much all gone. Wow. So yeah. then, can you tell me? So you, that happened on uh, you know a few days ago. Yeah, and then. Yesterday, you were outside Parliament House speaking about the fires and about climate change. Can you tell me how you were able to transition from, like, what happened that allowed you to go from from that experience to speaking at that demonstration? Like, emotionally was um, anger, really, that allowed me to to do that, my partner and I and our daughter, to go down to Sydney, just motivated by absolute frustration at what we were hearing from the politicians about how now is not the time to talk about climate change and I don't, they don't have any right to decide for me when is the right time to talk about climate change. That, like There couldn't be a more pressing need to start curbing um, some of these really serious effects that we're seeing. So, I mean, 
I'm fortunate that I have a good network of family and friends um, about halfway between our old house and Sydney, so I'd relocated there. Um, and when I heard about the opportunity to visit New South Wales State Parliament, we just yeah, absolutely felt like we had to be there um, to show them what it really looked like. Well, how, how did you hear about it? Was it a friend or was it online? Um, yeah, online and friends, yeah. As I said, I have a good network of uh, friends who are also engaged in social change in, in Newcastle, so yeah, they sort of help facilitate that process too. And I imagine that those relationships of support both allow you emotionally just work through what you're going through plus being able to respond publicly yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't do it without the support that I have. But there's so many, so many good people here that work here in Newcastle that worked, you know, for the betterment of the world and the environment and for different communities. And, you know, they totally support and understand why we needed to do this and, yeah, support us through it, even if it is simple things like borrowing a pram for our daughter so we can push her around the city while we talk to 500 people and, I know, offer lifts or, or whatever it is, it, yeah, makes it um, easier. So one of the sort of sort of double-edged things about your experience is that you've had such a tragedy and at the same time you're able to speak to the horror of the climate emergency that, mm. that you're worried about better than most people. Why do you think your voice is so powerful in this moment? Because I am on the front lines of the climate crisis. I'm a bushfire survivor and, I mean, I'm, it's, it's important that the, the, the country and the politicians particularly hear from people like me to really understand uh, what it's like because there's going to be so many more of people in our situation. There's already hundreds of people you know, in this, just this region that are in the same situation as, as myself. So, I mean, I, there's so much opportunity in this crisis to use the, uh, use our voices, our honest voices of experience. Yeah. To, to start talking about what we need to Mm. instead of shoving it under the carpet. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, have you found that speaking out has helped you? Like, do you think that that actually voicing your anger in this way has has helped you? In, in, like, and if so, in what way? Yeah, <laughs> most definitely, a hundred percent. I'm sure I would still be in bed if I had one. No, just kidding. I do actually have a bed, but I. The, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, most definitely. I not only for being distracted and having a task at hand, but it's so cathartic to be able to communicate what I'm thinking. It's when I after I addressed the crowd um, at the action in Sydney the other day, I felt like such a great sense of relief. People were, you know patting me on the back, supporting me, that kind of stuff. And not that I'm after pats on the back, but just the, for actually having done something to, you know, to try and change things is the most empowering and relieving 
thing. I don't think there's anything better that I could have done and continue to do to to work through this difficult transition. And I'll, you know, continue to use my voice until long enough um, until people are willing to listen to it. So, look, you've been speaking out, but I know that speaking out is hard. You know, it's one of those things that some people can do, some people can do, some people can't do straight away. Some people may never be able to do that at all. You know, there's a lot of people who've been affected. There's less people who are able to speak out about what's going on with the fires and with climate change. I certainly know that um, taking a really different space, which was the shootings that happened at Parklands, um, high school um, where 17 classmates were shot, some students did speak quickly and they created a social movement around gun violence across the United States. But others found their voice later and others still found it difficult, still find it difficult to speak. And we're just wondering about any insights that you have about this question of speaking out and what makes speaking out easier or, or harder from your experience or to, and in talking to others. Yeah, I guess... I've been trying to find my voice for a fair while now and this crisis has presented an opportunity where I, I have found my voice. So, uh, and I mean for other people maybe, you know, we, we would have very different needs in, in how we would recover and, and how we would, um, what we would need to do to recover. But, yeah, it's... I really feel quite thankful actually that I've been presented with an opportunity where I can speak publicly about um, the underlying causes of climate change without the focus on the loss so much. So, yeah, it feels a bit odd, but that's that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. So speaking out, um, being uh, bold in a moment like this can also make you vulnerable. You know, the force, we know that the forces that oppose climate change are, are rich and powerful and kind of relentless. Have you experienced criticism and, and attack so far or are you worried about that? No, I haven't really actually received any criticism. I think our message is strong and it's absolutely real. Um, and we sort of have, have a bit of uh, immunity to <laughs> the... Uh, to the kinds of criticisms that would normally be expected because we've just lost our house, uh, you know, and we're speaking from the front lines of the climate crisis. So uh, that in itself is an opportunity, um, although I do expect at some point that we'll be highly criticised for having this position. But, again, I just feel so resolved in, you know, the need to address the environmental concerns that we have that I just don't care anymore the politicians are just you know they're slandering and it's nonsensical and it's low and I'm I don't feel threatened threatened by that now I feel empowered yeah I guess I am concerned a little bit but that just means not looking at any comments on Facebook not getting lost in in that world because that became become a vortex of denial and I, so I would I just choose not to I try not to spend too much time on Facebook and social media particularly to to listen to that stuff it's just it's not good for my mental health or my partner's mental health to you know engage in that online trolling I don't really um, specifically comment on social media I try and 
you know, really just leave that to the side and focus on the message. So that sounds also the, uh, that it's incredibly important to have face-to-face support. You know, you're the ne- you've kept talking about your relationships and your networks coming to the demonstration, mm. all this physical mm. contact as being so important, less so the online in, in this moment of crisis. Well, it's certainly true for me. Like a lot of people are making uh, Facebook videos and writing their thoughts online and people are really strong in doing that and that's a really important part of the conversation. But for myself personally, I'd much rather stand up in front of a crowd of people and to be able to look people in the eyes and speak truthfully and um, honestly, yeah, about about what I'm experiencing. The online world is it's intimidating. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Mm. So look, you know, obvious, obviously, there's such a cliche to say this, but you know, you've had such a horrific experience, and yet without serious action on climate change, you know, other people are going to go through it too, without question, mm. right? And it might be in bushfires, it might be in excessive droughts, it might be, it'll take different forms, but this kind of terrible experience is going to happen to so many other people. What message do you have for other families like yours who who possibly live in the bush or in regional Australia and maybe haven't thought through questions like climate change and how it impacts in those regions? Gee, that's a big question, isn't it? How oh, how I hear that question is, is what advice would I give to families living in the bush to prepare for the consequences of um, global heating and I mean, most practically, I would tell people to, uh, you know, make sure that, first of all, their place was um, somewhat defendable in the case of catastrophic conditions, even though that's actually said not to be possible, Um, but to secure water sources, to secure food sources and all of those basic things that will keep us alive. I mean, outside of that, to, you know, make sure that people are supported by their community and linked in with their community and contributing in ways that they see fit Um, because, you know, we're really only here to look out for each other and make sure that we're all okay. So if we can continue to do that, I think that, you know, there's some hope for us. Mm. So it's it's early days, right? It's such early days, sort of extraordinary. But do you see yourself doing more in this space, in this space on climate change into the future? Does this feel like a, a place that you need to be now? 100%. I, I don't feel like I have, well, I don't have anywhere else to be. I don't have any home to go to. And the evidence is so clear that we are experiencing a climate crisis. So my, my partner and I both quit our jobs on the day that our house or the day after our house burnt down and relocated to uh, a city. So we uh, it feels like a moral duty at this point when all of the, the warnings and signs are clear that um, and the politicians are ignoring them that, yeah, I will be, you know, engaged in, in this stuff for, yeah, more strongly. Wow. So look, finally, you know, you've, uh, you've shared so much and so, so generously and so soon after such an intense period. But my question is, if you have any lessons or insights, you know, you've gone through this ex- extraordinary experience that others will go through too. Are there any lessons or insights that you, you draw out of this experience that, uh, you know, in particular, I guess, about how we make change? I look at you and go, 
you are the quintessential change maker. You and your husband are <laughs> unbelievable. And I only hope that if I was in a crisis, I would have a tenth of the strength you guys have shown. Um, is there, <laughs> is there, oh, of my utter pleasure, and I'm sure everyone decent in this country um, thinks so too, right? Mm. Um, but are there any lessons about this that, that you sort of think, oh, wow, I, I've learned something new about how we might make change from my experience? Like there's small lessons and there's big lessons. Uh, small lesson is if an interviewer asks you a question, answer it in whatever way you want to get your message across. And the big lessons are that crises are just they're, they're opportunities, um, yeah, and to take those opportunities to try and make change is a really powerful thing, I think, for the broader community and also the individual, certainly in my case. And lessons on, you know, what the future uh, will look like. It was a big lesson losing our house, you know, and summer's not even here and there's communities at home actively defending their properties as I speak. So, yeah, in terms of preparation for bushfires and, you know, and rising sea level, they, they have to be made and they have to be taken seriously and they have to be done soon. Yeah. So many lessons. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fiona, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights and also just for being, um, you know, the kind of hero that we all need in this moment. I really appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you. Although Hero sits quite uncomfortably with me. I have, you know, I believe we all have a moral duty to stand up for what's right. And I've just been presented with the opportunity to, yeah, to do that. So thank you also for letting me speak with you. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my delight. And I hope <laughs> that the people who are listening to this this show can take some of these insights into the work that they do as well. Yeah. Let's yeah, hope that happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Amanda Tattersall and Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. And this episode was recorded at Sydney University's Faculty of Arts and Social Science Media Centre. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of change making.